Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Counsel, the quest for safety. Smart Counsel provides perspectives and resources to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio, your host for the evening, and with me is very special guest, Hilary Reno. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Reese. Yeah. So I have the great privilege of having known you for a while, and we've worked together, and we go back a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, for the listener who may not know you, what, who are you in brief, and what is your <laughs> corner of the counseling world and clinical passions, et cetera? So who am I? I mean, the title is I claim um, social worker, radical social worker, maybe even and justice weaver and knowledge seeker. Um, Some of the titles that I've been given are clinical social worker and um, mental health supervisor and uh, counselor and therapist. So um, I'm currently doing a lot of different kind of dynamic work uh, at Quest, Center for Integrative Health. I'm the clinical supervisor of mental health services there, but with an addiction counseling background and clinical social work background, I kind of find myself doing a lot of overlap. That sounds really exciting with a whole lot of, a whole lot of really important and exciting pieces overlapping and intersecting. I mean, that's typical of what I, what I know you to do where you, you see the big picture Mm -hmm. and all the threads and you, and you weave them all together. Tell me a little bit about like supervision work and how that's been. Like last time we worked together, we were, uh, neither of us were supervisors officially. What's that been like for you? It's interesting. I mean, I would say it's still very much a learning edge for me. And some parts of it have just felt like really familiar and really natural uh, because it's really, it's just being in relationship with somebody with some different kinds of boundaries that are not so dissimilar from some of the, you know, therapeutic relationships I've been in. I certainly have some, you know, the, the added responsibilities of kind of guiding and mentoring, but it's been really wonderful. It's been interesting, however, to to be in a field where there's actually, there are all kinds of supervision modalities and structures that are in place. And it's what's been most, I think, challenging for me is finding one that fits. And they're kind of not all a good fit for me. So I'm still at that place. Yeah. Not all the supervision models are a good fit. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. But I, but I love the, I love the emphasis on relationship and just sitting in the room with a person over the last year and a half where I've gotten to do some teaching I've gotten to do supervision also in, in a group setting in a uh, group setting individual setting which has really been fun and actually I'm in as of when we're recording this I'm taking the, the 30 hour supervision supervisor training from Dr. Karen Hickson and uh, that's been really fun but yeah one of the things I've loved about supervision is how definitely definitely the relational component but how I with the slightly different boundary, like I get to be more of a person in the room a little bit and I get to let more of my story and my personality be a little present and actually watch how are the two personalities interweaving and impacting each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that that doesn't happen with clients, but there's a little bit more of a divide and a little different boundary there. Yeah. And I don't know what your supervisory relationships have been like, but I certainly at Quest have an opportunity to do something that I think is a little bit counter to what 
many of the trainings around, you know, models of supervision teach us. And, and that is have relationships that bridge across discipline and across like modalities and have relationships with people who are in pure mentoring positions yeah. and therapist positions. And so um, I, it's just like, it's so rich with that, like learning reciprocity. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm learning and guiding, they're learning and guiding. And I, I love the opportunity of so much like texture in those relationships. Yeah. I love that too. And I love the idea of knowing people in multiple contexts because you Mm -hmm. really, I think they would really get to see you as a person in more of those. And it would be more, they, they learn from you as a person, how to be like you as a person. Mm -hmm. Like anybody could read a book about a theory and Mm -hmm. try to implement it, but it's, it's actually the human connection, the human role model, like the, the the relational experience that will actually change a person. So indeed. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Quest as well. What do they do? What's their focus? What's their target demographic? What do you What do you love about it there? There's so much that I love about Quest. Um, they've been around, actually, Quest has been around for a really long time. Lucia Marks, who is one of the co-founders, is still an active practitioner, very active practitioner at Quest. And when Quest started uh, back in the 80s, it really started as a community hub that was sort of a safe haven, primarily for individuals who identified as gay and lesbian and were living with HIV or AIDS and they were looking for sort of a solace, a place to gather and get support. And we have sort of maintained that mission. So Quest still has very culturally specific services fit really well for people who identify as gay, lesbian, trans, queer, questioning, two-spirit. And we have an HIV services program that's very dynamic, um, being able to meet substance use, therapy, um, peer mentoring, group support needs. And like... Above all, we're integrated. And so as an integrated health clinic, all of our programs have access to some very key components. Mental health therapy is one. Chinese medicine is another. Naturopathic care, acupuncture, and then movement therapy, which is either Qigong or yoga or some various movement modality. So. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So. Well, goodness, that's really exciting. Like, like I love integration to begin with, yeah. but it's sometimes I get in the sort of thinking, oh, integration is just mental health and addictions or, you know, just counseling and diet or nutrition. But my goodness, I mean, the list you dropped of like all these wonderful things, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, medical care and yeah. uh, everything. Yeah. I mean, I think the siloing of these pieces is very much a human construct that doesn't exist in our experience. Like we experience all of these things complexly and interwoven and, and, and yet humans kind of silo them and section them out. And it's just sure. not reflective of the human experience. Yeah. So, so imagine not, a, not every individual practitioner request does all of the things, but are all of the things housed in the same building? Crank and go from one to the other to the other? Well, we have multiple buildings. Oh, okay. And so different programs are, some programs are across multiple buildings. Some are just in one building. But there's a lot of intention among all the programs. We have a lot of cross-discipline and cross-programmatic meetings that happen. Um, and actually, I think another very unique quality about Quest is that many of the providers do have skill sets that extend beyond like just one specific thing. So Ah. we have, you know, peer mentors who also facilitate a meditation group and person who prepares our free community dinner also facilitates a nutrition group. And 
we have, you know, naturopaths who can practice Qigong and uh-huh. do psychodrama groups. Huh. And so it's like the clinical A team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, yeah. 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 Oh man. So that's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So I love talking about all that for a long time. Um, <laughs> so I know one of the things that we were planning on talking about tonight had to do with trauma, trauma-informed care, what creates clinical safety, a therapeutic safe space, or as in learning to frame it, more of a, a therapeutic brave space. Tell me a little bit about, well, maybe backing up. So I want to get to how do you practice trauma-informed care? How does Quest as an organization practice trauma-informed care? But for the sake of the students who might be listening, maybe let's step back and, and clarify some of these terms and uh, unpack some of these, these concepts. So actually, and before we even unpack trauma-informed, maybe let's talk a little bit about what actually is trauma. When it's this really big buzzword that gets thrown around a whole bunch, it's a diagnosis, it's billable, it's studied, there's lots of study around it. Um, but what actually is trauma. Whoa. (laughs) Well, I'll do my best. I mean, all I can do is represent like my own understanding of it. I mean, I see trauma as uh, it could be singular, prolonged, multiple cumulative experiences that occur over the course of an individual's life that impact them. And to the degree that it sort of leaves uh, a lasting mark or requires that they adapt through various ways. I also see, you know, systemic um, oppression as part of trauma that can, you know, continue to occur and impact an individual's life. So I see it not just as events or an event, but can be ongoing environmental agents that inflict impactful experiences that leave a mark. I really appreciate the nuance of that and the the, the multiple shades, multiple layers of what that is. And I think the the stereotype of trauma is, oh, well, this this guy went to, to the Vietnam War and came back traumatized because mm-hmm. he saw that war violence or mm-hmm. that woman was, was raped and so she has trauma because mm-hmm. she had that singular experience. And when those definitely are traumas, we might even say, you know, big T traumas. But but I like how, how you're presenting this as it's not just those big events, because the reality is most people have trauma of some sort. But you're right. Trauma can be a single event. It can be multiple events, a lot of different types of events. And I think the one, and I'm really glad you said this, is the the cumulative effect mm-hmm. of an event. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of like compassion fatigue or burnout that a lot of providers experience. Or like you had said, just the, the effects of living in an oppressive society or yeah. an oppressive system. Absolutely. A way that I sometimes frame trauma or have sometimes framed it to clients and tell me what you think is just trauma a little bit different than a stressor because everybody has stressors. But a trauma is a stressor that overwhelms, even if just by a little, your overall capacity to cope and exceeds your coping skills in some way. And that causes some damage and more so if it's a prolonged state of being overwhelmed. Yeah. And I would add to that, that one need not have an awareness of it for it still to be trauma. I mean, I've encountered many people who have had experiences that appear, and I use air quotes, normal because they're no different than what they see around them in their immediate environment. But that's not to say that it does not have an impact on them and and isn't also cold trauma, should they choose to call it that. For sure. Thinking about a person who has always been in relationships that were physically abusive, emotionally, sexually abusive, spiritually abusive, and if that's all that they've ever known, then that's that's normal for them. And, And it takes an outside perspective, someone to recognize, hey, that's that's not normal. Most people don't live this way or healthy people don't live this way. And I think too, like just to kind of pull on that thread a little bit more and 
and I feel strongly that this is about, like, this is how I practice truly, like, trauma-informed care. It may even be that I'm working with somebody and, and I have a different lens and I'm able to identify, a, you know, accumulation of experiences as traumatic, but that might not be the language that they use to describe it. And so I feel it's also really important, even with my own lens and knowledge, that I still honor a person's, like, truth and the words that they use to describe it as opposed to imposing, you know, my own my own words my own frame on that so I'm kind of being gentle and cautious and really listening to yeah not labeling someone's experience for them with like oh my goodness you have clinical trauma let's diagnose you versus letting them come to either realize that on their own or conceptualize it differently. Yeah, which I hope that we, you know, when we are in relationship, in therapeutic relationship with people, we are doing. We're not trying to impose our own, like, frame, but rather just hold a reflection of a different one. Yeah, I like that very person-centered, reflective approach, one that allows a person to to grow and to really develop as opposed to just handing them answers. Yeah. So I think the other variation I'm thinking is that, you know, I'm thinking about my lenses. I see someone trauma my my instinct went now when i see somebody who's experiencing something that that i would define as traumatic is well let's change it let's get you out of that let's alleviate the pain let's get you out of the situation and sometimes that's that's appropriate and that's what both of us want and then there's other times when the person is actually more okay with the situation than i would be and sometimes they will push back on that depending on what it is and then sometimes people will opt to say well can i maybe i don't need to escape it can i become better in it which is weird to me to think about because my you know, my own self-preservation instinct is really strong and I, I want to extend that. I project that onto other people mm-hmm. and say, I want to preserve mm-hmm. you and get you out of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I forget that, oh yeah, there there's sometimes is a way that people can grow stronger and more resilient within the context of an ongoing difficulty. And I mean, it's not really my place to take that away from them with some exceptions. Yeah. I mean, I, I can identify with that urge you know, that um, desire to kind of to see a, a different to see a different option or options and, and to want to bring that to somebody. And so, you know, the patience and just like having patience for understanding what their experience is. And um, yeah, I guess just having having patience and, um, you know, as you said, they may be experiencing something that feels very normal to them. It's what they've been experiencing. And you may have some ideas about, you know, ways that, that their life could be different. But I think it's it's really important. And this goes to another value that is a big one for me and not seeing things in terms of the right way of adapting or the wrong way of adapting, but rather looking at what's sustainable for that person and really presenting it on a spectrum of sustainability mm. as opposed to the right way and the wrong way. I like that. Yeah. What's sustainable. I might have even thrown in there what's sustainable and what's connective yeah. in recognizing traumas can promote isolation or disconnection or dissociation and Oftentimes, some sort of recovery involves some some manner of restoration of relationship or yeah. repair of relationship yeah. in some way. So, and remember, I try and remember, and this is something that comes up a lot in the the, the women's group that I facilitate. It's the trauma recovery and empowerment group that people are infinitely capable of some of their own liberation, and like I think that. There is power and strength in people. And sometimes it's just about helping to wake it up. It's important for me to remember as a therapist that we're very capable and resilient and they've adapted and, and survived and probably have all of the answers that they need to liberate themselves. Just somebody, you know, to kind of know, shine a light on the path. I'm nodding very sagely in agreement. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I concur. I observe that as well. People are incredibly creative and adaptive and 
people are good at finding ways of surviving mm-hmm. and of getting through. Mm-hmm. And granted, sometimes the the first thing that they find is not the best, and sometimes the the instinctive protective urge is well, in the long run more more maladaptive. And that's where some learning comes in to say, well, it's mm-hmm. you already know how to survive. Let's teach you some better ways mm-hmm. to do that. Which I feel like that's a bulk of what counseling is anyway. It's presenting a new way of thinking or a new perspective or you know nod to my practice new patterns for living (laughs) Um, and you know especially for I think people who have survived trauma it's presenting a different experience of life and a relationship so that they're like literally like they're like they're fight or flight system in the brain can experience something different than they've always experienced. Yeah, I agree. So, so we've kind of circled around what, what trauma is a little bit, mm-hmm. um, this very dynamic, fluid, multi-shade, multi-level force that I would venture to say most, if not all people have experienced at least a little bit. So then what is trauma-informed care? Which again, another another catchphrase buzzword and, you know, insurance companies like it and we like to market ourselves with it. But what actually is it? Well, I, I don't know that I'm going to offer any definitions that fit some of those training modules or uh, foundations that, you know, teach and practice and provide materials for it. But for me, I mean, trauma-informed care is intentional, consensual, and reciprocal relationship. It is, it is, it's patience, it's listening, and it, it means just really staying dialed in, asking, asking, asking all the way, rather than assuming. I think in my role, and, and I don't know if you'll feel the same about this, Reese, but I think we are in this role imbued with a great deal of power and, and even uh, this like sense of like, I have these tools and I know the right way, the better way. Yes. And maybe we really subscribe to that. I I, I don't, or at least I really try to kind of push back against that. And I think for me, trauma-informed care is part of pushing back against that, that I don't necessarily know the right ways. Um, and again, this goes back to people having their own intrinsic wisdom and their own you know abilities to liberate. Mm. So for me, it's just, it's really listening. It's staying in relationship. It's asking questions. It's gaining consent. It's just staying dialed in every step of the way and not assuming anything. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. And it's, and it's- making me challenge how I think too. I mean, I'm, I'm already very much on board with the, like consider the person's context and like pursue that and be very curious about that. But something you had said, I'm going to sum up as taking off your expert hat when you're in the room. And and I, I think this will impact how I talk with my students because before I've talked to my students who, granted, when a counseling student is in their first semester meeting their first practicum client, they're, they're working through a lot of their own insecurities. They're new. They've never written a progress note. What the heck is a treatment plan? And wrestling through a whole bunch of things like how do I pick a theory? Do I have a theory? There's so many theories. School is overwhelming. And so when when they're in that mindset, I know I've encouraged students to recognize, well, when you go in the room, like you automatically have some power and credibility just because you're the professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which maybe for like the first semester is good to give them like a confidence bump because I mean, confidence is great, but I do see how that could be carried too far and should be tamed at some point because you're right. I think if we do get caught up in our sense of our own professionalism and, you know, see our, see our credential initial more than we see our own name on one level, we're technically experts, but then you know, I'm never an expert on the client. You know, they're they're the expert on their own selves and they're the expert on their life and their experience and their mm-hmm. perspective. And mm-hmm. even if there's some impairment in there, they're they're still the center of their own experience and I and I can't ever take that position from them. Right. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that you brought up, you know, the the power that 
we do carry, whether or not we exercise it and to what degree we do in that relationship, we absolutely walk into that room with that power. But I think also trauma-informed care means a continual awareness of how we hold that power, in what ways we wield it consciously and unconsciously, how we participate in the using of it. So that to me is another extension of trauma-informed care. Yeah. A good trauma-informed approach should include a whole lot of self-reflection, which good counseling should anyway. But in this case, specifically reflecting on what's your power or um, I was talking to some people and they phrased it, uh, what's the way that you move through society compared to the way your client moves through society? And I mean, here we might branch into talks about you know, societal privilege, you know, racial privilege, gender privilege, which a lot of therapists have to some degree, uh, not all. And in our overall societal privilege oftentimes is different than that of our clients. And so, I mean, that should impact how we interact with them as well. Like when I'm presenting solutions or trying to present solutions, I can't take it for granted that everyone has the same options that I do Mm -hmm. or the same capacity to carry out those same solutions because they often don't. Yeah. And two, to stretch that out a little bit further, even with all of my intentions, you know, around providing the safest environment I possibly can and practicing from the least trauma or harmful way I can, there are still some things that I won't be able to control. And, you know, I think this idea of a fully safe space is I think it's inherently flawed and it invisibilizes some things like privilege yeah. and, and, and how we have it, what we have, who has it. So that question, just to yeah. explore things. So I, I would agree that the, the completely safe, completely sterile environment, A, is kind of mythical, unattainable. And I also wonder if it's even healthy to, to get there if we could. Uh, I've heard some people differentiate between a safe space or discomfort is not the same as unsafe. Or Absolutely. Yes, and there might be more graceful ways of saying that. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you've just spoken to exactly what I was referencing. It's a tricky word that has been packed with some assumptions that I think are based on um, some sets of privileges that not everybody experiences. But I could go on and on about that. I I love differentiating between safety and discomfort. I think it's an important uh, distinction. What would you say, at least in your experience, are acceptable in even healthy discomforts for a client to experience? Oh, that's so nuanced. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I could come up with specific examples, but, but I do know that I have on a number of occasions have had this conversation, you know, with people talking about the differences between discomfort that takes you to an area that's unfamiliar and challenges you and, and create some, you know, feelings of being a little unsettled. Mm-hmm. And that's different from things that are immediately activating and create a, a succession of, you know, activated responses in one's body and mind. Like it's difficult to articulate those too, because they're felt and experienced right. uniquely by the person. But I know that I've, I've certainly had that conversation a number of times with people when differentiating between those things that challenge and push us toward our edges and those that are just still like really big activators. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Sort of the difference between doing the, the good, important work of thinking a new type of thought or considering a new type of perspective or like sitting with an emotion that maybe previously you would have smoked or drank away versus becoming triggered and then dissociating and, you know, you're no longer in the present, you're no longer in the body 
or actually something in the room like you, you're now afraid of your therapist or something. You know, those would not be so healthy. Yeah, those are good examples. So trauma-informed, I mean, I know, I know there's tons of articles and studies and, you know, five major points and premises of it. But but I love what we're talking about here and kind of the, the embodied component of that. You know, you take your five main precepts of trauma-informed care and like they, that all kind of translates into a person, into a therapist in the room being very aware of their own self, their own power, their own voice, their own space and size in society, and just being very careful about how they move. It sounds like checking in with the client a lot of the time and pursuing a deeper understanding of who the client is and their experience, their changing experience session to session, and all without interrogating the client because we don't want to do that either. I think it's something else that I'm, I've has felt like a, a natural professional development for me I'm finding in my conversations with other people is there's an increasing movement towards doing this, but it's still sort of subversive. Um, and I feel very trauma informed um, and it kind of follows that vein of nothing about us without us. And that's approaching diagnoses um, through conversation rather than something I do in my office after everything's done and somebody finds in their medical chart later on. So I'm really part of the conversation I have with people too is checking in with them. Like I'm in a position now where I'm, I'm doing, um, you know, a lot of uh, assessments and getting people connected with services and what's it like to have a conversation with somebody about, hey, so you've presented all of these different things and I'm tasked with this um, this job of you know providing a diagnosis because, well, let's face it, we interface with insurance companies and so they require it. <laughs> it, right? It's that necessary evil in some cases. So how to have a conversation with somebody about the, you know, the responsibility of diagnosing and how can we do that through conversation and with consent and with their full knowledge without it being this like, whoa, kind of moment when they read their chart much later and right. see this hefty diagnosis or this diagnosis and they've never even been told about it or sure. didn't know. So Yeah, no, I love that approach. It's 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 transparent in that mm-hmm. you're not, you know, you're not the Wizard of Oz up behind your green smoky curtain. Like you're you're a human in the room, your your process is open. Mm-hmm. It's not some big mystical secret. You know, mm-hmm. you can see the nuts and bolts there. Um, and that sort of approach is really collaborative mm-hmm. because it's you and the client working together. And mm-hmm. I feel like really empowering to the client. I've I've always been a little disturbed when I run into a client who doesn't care about their diagnosis, who doesn't want to know. Or, I mean, and it, it's some, I guess sometimes that happens for healthy reasons. But clients who, like, disconnect themselves from, from their own chart, from their own progress and put, I guess, a, a, a blind trust in, in us as professionals. or and I, and I wonder how much of that is, I mean, maybe they honestly don't care, or maybe it's this institutionalized, you know, what? understanding that, well, you're the, you're, you're the lowly client and you, you just sit there and do what we say and, you know, we'll tell you what we think you need to know. Yeah, I mean... We have evidence of systems that continue to participate in a way that um, individual voices are not included. And so, you know, that's a paradigm that exists. So, yeah. yeah. Another thing I like is, and I, and I haven't completely mastered this either, is like the actually collaborative note taking too, which I mean, some of that has more to do with like, I just haven't organized my time very well yet. <laughs> um, but, um, but, I, but I've always loved that idea too of, hey, we've talked for, you know, 48 minutes. Now let's like discuss together for, you know, four or five, seven minutes, you know, what 
what are we going to agree happened today? And, you know, what do you want said or not said? Yeah. Um, and again, I'm really giving the client ownership and that empowers, educates them. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't. Um, that's not a skill that I would say I've developed. <laughs> and I think I have some perhaps traumatic experiences related to concurrent documentation. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but I definitely, you know, in, um, in my role in, you know, supervising interns and other therapists have shared my own thoughts about documentation. Like imagine what you're writing right now. Imagine if the person that you've been in this deep relationship with is reading it. How do you imagine that would land for them to read? You know, how are you using their name or is it just, you know, client? Like how are you talking about their experience? I think that too is really impactful. And whether or not somebody, you know, reads the dozens of chart notes or the assessment, I, I don't think we should ever, I will never stray from that value of centering that person's voice and making sure how I write about their experience keeps that in mind. Yeah. Would it be fair to say, practicing my reflective listening skills on you, <laughs> um, <laughs> would it be fair to say that you're saying the, the chart notes should carry the client's voice instead of the clinician's voice or as much as the clinician's voice? Well, I will, I'm going to answer this question with um, some hesitation because I will just say, I mean, I work in a, in an outpatient clinic in a county in a state. And so of course we have all kinds of, you know, rules that have a lot to say about how we document. I think that there is a way that we can follow those rules, but not lose sight of the most important, like, thread and that is the person uh, that we're working with i mean that's who the notes about right. that's what the service is for so i feel okay. like it's, it's you can do both that makes sense yeah both and that's what we do that's good <laughs> so, <laughs> cool well so so with this sort of initial framework for what is trauma-informed care and again recognizing the official components i mean you can find it on google for sure um, mm -hmm. we've talked a little bit about how you and i in particular kind of understand it, how we practice it, or how we understand it anyway. And you know, now I'd love to explore a little bit of how you in particular practice trauma-informed care. And you know, we could talk about, you know, attitudes and mindsets, like specific words to say or not say, body postures to take or not take, or, you know, how do you how do you curate that sort of environment for a client? Well, I mean I, I have I do have the privilege of a very comfortable space that is mine and so I can claim it and, and, and you know, furnish it in ways that I like. But I've been in settings where that's not the case, so I'm, I'm keeping that in mind. But um, having living things around is definitely, um, I think, a very welcoming uh, ingredient to a very trauma-informed space, whether that's plants or a fish or something, but having living things around. Um, I have plants all over my office and I am not a plant person by nature. <laughs> Someone even commented on my green thumb today. I said, well, only here, really. Truly. <laughs> And then, um, you know, just little comforts like uh, tea. I have a variety of teas and I've heard time and again how like nice it is for somebody to come in and just feel so comfortable. They can have, you know, tea if they want tea and yeah. having something warm to hold on to is actually can be really therapeutic and very grounding and definitely so. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of setting the scene in those ways, uh, even as simple as asking about where they would like to sit, how they would feel most comfortable, if they need daylight in the room or not. I mean, I have the option of providing that 
I mean, those are some of the ways that I kind of set the container a little bit. For sure. And I, and I love talking about that. And, and again, recognizing, you know, there, there, there's a privilege that goes with that. And, you know, I've been in yeah. those same yeah. windowless rooms under the fluorescent lights with like the hideous carpet. And, you know, the, <laughs> there's not much you can do there. <laughs> um, I mean, you can play with like spatial dynamics and how far away from the client you sit. Uh, mm-hmm. Does the client want to sit next to the door, or next to the wall? But I mean, for, for those who can take some control of their space. Yeah. I'm a big advocate for plants, real plants that, you know, actually purify the air, you know, decorations that are blue instead of red. And, you know, I've typically enjoyed when people have like, you know, essential oils floating around the room. Uh, except though I, I, I've heard sometimes that there are clients who are sensitive to scents, but anyway, um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you can play around with space to just create a, an aesthetically, welcoming, safe, soothing space. So, I mean, I have all kinds of other things that I provide. Um, soft tissues are a must. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's sort of setting the scene and then, not the scene, but it's kind of setting the, the environment or the container mm-hmm. for doing trauma-informed care. But I've forgotten the question initially. Um, what are some specific ways that you practice trauma-informed care? And now, well, I mean, since we started with how do you cultivate your space, and now I'm thinking, well, like, what's, what's the sequence? So there, there's your space, and I guess then there'd be, like, the intake process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I imagine we could talk about, a lot about, like, trauma related to, to the intake process. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. Are there things that you think about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um well, first and foremost, um, I will tell everybody, and this is something I'll retell and recheck in about, um, agency and choice and consent are so crucial. And what that means is um, I anybody that I'm, I'm seeing and, and I'm thinking um, most immediately of like doing an intake with somebody, for instance, just because I ask a question doesn't mean that they're required to answer it. They're at choice about what they share and what they don't share. And, and that I will, I will absolutely respect that and, um, not push or insist. I check in again and again and again about that. It also, for me, you know, doing like meeting somebody for the first time, um, it's about checking in about language too. I mean, we operate on this plane of verbal, language or verbal communication, but that's not always the the modality of communication everybody uses. I mean, I've, you know, I've met with people who have difficulty with words and word grasping. And so um, having an understanding of all their different levels of communication, being some signals for things. Um, I think working with new therapists who struggle with how to artfully and gently sort of interrupt, redirect, or, or guide back to a question, that's a, that's a skill and a strategy that I think it's taken me a long time to figure out. But having a conversation with somebody about their nonverbal and verbal cues, things that they would prefer. Met with somebody who said they were very tangential and had a difficult time staying on track, and they, you know, would like some support with that. And we devised some very specific nonverbal cues and then verbal cues that they were okay with. I really like that. I haven't thought of that. I, I think I, I've just gone with the oh, well, if people are talkative, I just have to interrupt them, and I'll be as polite as I can. But this idea of like actually agreeing ahead of time, like if I need to interrupt you, what would be a safe, yeah. supportive way to do that? Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like agreements, right? That 
I think our rules, group rules, group agreements for, for groups. For sure. But this is, these are still agreements that you're engaging in this relationship. It may even be brief, but still yeah. consensual agreements. Yeah. And I like the idea of consensual agreements compared to just like rules or policies. Like, mm-hmm. cause I can't say, well, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this thing this way for our clients A through Z you know, no matter what, because there's a lot of difference there and have to like work out a specific, I, I think it'd be better to hold hold a particular value. Like, you know, I want to be supportive, you know, vague term, but you know, I want to hold this value. What does that specifically look like with client A, B, C, D? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it takes a great deal of energy to set the container and to really be in integrity with it. And it's particularly challenging when you are trying to establish that container, perhaps inside of a larger container that is not as supportive or is even resistant or not actively participating trauma-informed care. And I would imagine there are a lot of providers out there working inside of systemic containers that are very resistant. And I will call attention to, you know, your container. Now, granted, it sounds like Quest is, you know, light years ahead of a lot of other agencies in some ways, but they are still an agency and agencies come with a lot of cumbersome systemic policies, procedures, like really, really long intakes that have to be done like within 48 hours and like, you know, too much paperwork all the time. So I want to call attention to, you know, you're, you're talking about this really high standard of trauma-informed care within that already too busy context. And so, you know, if you can be aspiring to that, you know, the clinician in private practice who can maybe relax a little bit more can also be doing this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm thinking about trauma-informed intake and I'm remembering some of like the longer intake processes I've mm. had to facilitate, negotiate, mm-hmm. uh, muddle through. And there, there's a lot of times when questions are just worded badly. So mm-hmm. I'll definitely take liberty to reword them to kind of get the point across, but in a softer, more person-centered way. I know there's sometimes like questions I wish I could skip, like... Well, I don't know, like where, like where I'm at, where I'm at now in my practice. Um, like I have a, I have a spot in my intake pattern to like to talk about trauma, but I'm also discovering that like, I don't really want to talk about trauma the first time because probably they don't either. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm acknowledging more and more often, you know, you know, new client, you know, we're strangers. So I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be a safe person, but until you really experience that, I don't want to demand that you share your deepest darkest with me. I'm almost like getting to the point of like, you know, making that kind of a, a, a policy of like, yeah, no, no deepest darkest secrets for like the first few meetings because we need to get to know each other. Yeah. Right. And, and that I feel ties back to a piece that I mentioned about, you know, nothing I ask, are you required to speak to or answer to. And I'm really glad you brought that up. I think it is, it's been a standard part of many different assessment models that I've seen to ask in-depth questions about an individual's traumatic experiences. I'm not going to assume that every person has a difficult time talking about them because not everybody does, but it is by and large an area that, you know, can be reactivating to talk about and with somebody you've just met. And, And yet... It's pervasive. It's expected. It is what many folks in our profession are asked, tasked to do. For sure. So that piece is really, it feels very counter to what trauma-informed care is in my mind. I, I think I agree. It, 
it's not necessarily the best yeah. conversation for the first time. I do think it's important, though, just to say that that doesn't mean that I am going to be completely like, okay, you don't want to talk about trauma. There's maybe been some trauma. I, I do think it is a responsible thing of me to find a way to ask them. So um, how can I be the most responsive to you right now? Like, are there any things, any, any things that I should avoid or any strategies for soothing that you do that I can support you in? I mean, I think there is an opportunity to do that. And that's a, I think that's a, a really um, res- responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't necessarily need to know all of the narrative in order to offer like support in that moment. Right. Yeah, which totally makes sense. It makes sense to tend to the the here and now trauma response. Mm-hmm. You don't need to know what the trauma was that caused the response, at least not right away. Yeah. Well, goodness, I know there's there's a lot that we could say about trauma informed care, like the like the whole length of treatment. You know, yeah. we, we got as far as intake, and you know, there's like treatment planning, and you know, like routine sessions, and how do you talk about group, and how do you talk about involving other people, and mm-hmm. how do you end a session, how do you end this treatment, and sounds like six or seven more podcast episodes <laughs> coming up there. Um, but I wonder for the for the practitioner who's wanting to know more about this, for the student who's just learning about this, you know, if this were the the only the only podcast they they, they listen to about trauma informed care, are, are there any other like really essential principles or techniques or things that that someone should should come away with? Well, I mean, I would still say trauma informed Oregon as a resource for for tools that one can take into their practice and to their organization is still a great resource. I mean, we've got a lot of great yeah. materials yeah. there. Trauma informed Oregon. Yeah, trauma informed Oregon. But I guess I would just say pay attention. Just pay attention and and pause and and know that you know there are immensely skilled, well trained, highly educated providers out there and. Even though we learn in school how to be compassionate and how to be, you know, empathetic, like the end of the day, just listening, just being in, you know, space with somebody and being patient is, it goes a lot further, I think, sometimes than any of our interventions, any of our trainings, any of our education does. Yeah. Being fully present, being human. Absolutely. Being in connection. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the the wounds that we bear have come out of some sort of relational dysfunction, and so a lot of the healing then is going to come through a new and healthy, safe, and experience of relationship. And oftentimes, that's that's the work we get to do is to be present in a, a new type of healthy relationship for the person. Which hopefully, I mean, it might just be like the spark or the first step. But hopefully that will lead to other growth and change in some other areas too. Yeah. And have full awareness of the environment in which you're doing that work and the pressures are kind of pushing at the work. Like stay aware of that too. Again, I've been in lots of different settings and I have felt the pressures. I know we both have. (laughs) Yes, we have. Um, And, you know, sometimes there's quite a bit of weight um, behind that pressure. Uh, But I think that... Our ethics tell us to center the relationship and the person and to not do harm. For sure. You know, thinking about the pressures that come on us that that mandate to, to not do harm, I think that it expands to include ourselves too. And, you know, you know, and we're not gonna do an episode yes. on self care here, but you know, the, yes. the practitioner needs to be healthy and yeah. stable and contained, yeah. you know, in the room also. And so there's a whole lot of other 
factors that feed into that as well. Yes. But we'll do that on another episode. Okay. Any last quick thoughts? Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's been wonderful. This has been great. Thank you for being here. And we'll have you back sometime. And thank you, listener, for following us. We will be back with more Smart Counsel. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com. And Reese Basimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Basimio and Joshua Moore.